third distinctive need is for resilience. And it's really hard to predict who has that because so many of us maybe haven't been knocked down in route or prior to getting to Hollywood. We may have succeeded within our, our, our corner of the world. And so we were the best in Omaha. We were the best in Kentucky. We were the best in Idaho. And then you get to Hollywood and it's like, well, the best in Idaho now has to compete with the best in every state and the best in every country. And a lot of people just collapse under that objection. So the most successful are oftentimes not the, the most talented, they are the most resilient. They can take the hit, be knocked to the mat and figure out how to get back up and do it again. This is the Act One Podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a good review. Our guest today is filmmaker Craig Detweiler. I'm your host, James Duke. I had the pleasure of interviewing Craig over Zoom back in April of this year. Craig Detweiler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. <laughs> um, Craig, uh, you are, I often think of you sometimes as, uh, and I'll explain this, as a bit of a prognosticator. You, because uh, I remember uh, we were at Sundance together this year and we were talking about Parasite and what was going to win. And I was rooting for Jojo Rabbit to win screenplay. And you said, yeah, don't be surprised if Parasite wins. And I said, really? And you were like, yeah. And we talked about it. And the only reason why I bring that up to start our conversation is it made me remember after Parasite won, it made me remember having a very similar conversation with you when LA Confidential won. And oh, all those years, years before, ago, yeah, years you, ago, yeah. you called that. I remember you saying to me in a conversation 20 years ago, yeah. hey, pay attention to who wins best screenplay. That's the one that most of the business is saying they think is the best film, particularly the writers. They're saying that's, this is the film that's going to last. And, uh, and then of course it won that it won best adapted, I believe that year yes. uh, in its category. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think of you that way. I just want you to know. Thank uh, you. Thank you. <laughs> honored. Honored um, to, yeah. How often are you wrong? That's my question. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, I, I'm curious about what makes, um, for you, why are you so passionate about films because I've known you for a while and obviously you're passionate about many things but you are um, deeply passionate about film where did that come from for you well that came from my own lived experience where films you know to some degree got me through childhood got me through junior high <laughs> uh, maybe maybe didn't quite get me through college but at every stage uh, when I've maybe been looking for clarity, inspiration, exemplars, uh, I've turned to, to film often to find that. Uh, maybe because it was convenient. Uh, you know, it was in a sense, it was right in front of me. It was there in my house. But I think also because maybe I wasn't finding the kind of heroism that I hoped to see mm. around me. And Were so, you, yeah. Was it, a, was it a thing where you... Was it, was it on all the time? Like were your parents or the family you grew up in, was it, uh, were they big cinema files or did you become, 
my mom took me to all the Disney movies when I was a kid. And, and by that, I don't mean just the animation. I mean also the live action. Yeah. And that was not a great era of Disney live <laughs> it was, You're talking about, uh, I mean, you know, no offense, but it was like Don Knotts. Tim Conway, you know, yeah. was, Apple Dumpling Gang. Yeah, yeah, it was some, it was some very broad uh, comedy, but it was still that ritual of going to the cinema. I think for my mom, it was a great break. It was a great break to get her out of the house, to get us thinking about something else. Um, and I think I maybe went on that escape with her, you know, that that um, as she needed that two hours in the dark to get a little room from us we then took that two hours and, and went to wherever the, the, the show or the storyteller wanted to take us. And so um, I don't, I mean, I, I, to, you could call it an escape, but I think it was an escape to a space that allowed us to process our own life. Mm. Gave us a little distance and a little room. Um, you know, where, did you, grow, where did you grow up? Where did you grow up, Greg? Uh, South Florida. South Florida. So, well, even as, so as one example, when it was blistering hot all summer, uh, <laughs> you know, the air conditioned cinema was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Uh, and sitting in the dark was a great thing when it was like so bright outside and so hot. So I think it was a refuge in that way. But uh, I, I remember Sister Rose uh, Picate talking about um, how uh, cinema is a place for us to, to take some time to ourselves to ponder, to think about things, so that even when we might have something that's weighing heavy on our heart, even going to see a comedy doesn't mean we're escaping from it. It means we're just getting a little distance, mm -hmm. maybe some much needed distance that allows us to come back and be reframed in a new way. That's good. When did it become for you uh, where you wanted to move from being an audience member to actually being on the other side and participating in the process of creating film and being a part of cinema? Well, maybe I was, um, you know, naive or something, but it just never occurred to me growing up on the East Coast that I could be part of this. Mm. It, and, and I mean, I studied the credits. I knew who directors were and I knew, you know, vaguely maybe what a producer did. And maybe had a sense that, oh, somebody wrote this story. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to California and met people in the business that suddenly it was like, oh wait, you, you work on this and, and maybe you don't even like movies as much as I do. You know, uh, I think I care about this more than you do. So maybe I should be involved in this. And um, I applied to USC film school without any, any credits whatsoever. You know, I'd never really picked up a camera or fiddled with anything, um, but I had worked as a summer camp counselor. And so I, I told on my application, I said, Hey, I've, I've, I've entertained, you know, <laughs> three, th 350 teenagers, you know, seven days a week, <laughs> all summer long. Like that's a hard job. You know, that's live theater of a, of a, <laughs> of a rough sort. And, uh, and I, maybe they bought that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they let me in, but, uh, uh that, that was undergrad at USC. No, that, no, that was as a, as a grad student. I had already, I had majored in English as an undergrad. So I had learned, I think, to appreciate good stories. Mm. And I learned what are the classic stories and what makes them classic and had a sense of archetypes and had a sense of how you fiddle with audience expectations and how you 
awaken you know readers in a new way so it, it, that english undergraduate major i think was great preparation uh but i it just never occurred to me that english undergrad could lead to screenwriting because mm -hmm. i hadn't really made the the leap to like oh there's people who actually do this yeah um so it was only after moving to california and uh and, and getting a degree at fuller seminary that i started meeting all these people in the film business who were in and around pasadena and suddenly it was like, oh, well, you can do this. Maybe I can do it. And uh, so, so I you went, get, yeah. So you got your MDiv at Fuller Seminary first and then went to USC and got a master's in um, it, filmmaking. Exactly. And, uh, and I even played that up a little bit on the application because I knew I couldn't hide it. You know, it's like... <laughs> You know, it's like, hey, I bet you haven't had one of these before. You know, like, <laughs> right. like don't you want to take a risk on a Master Divinity student? See what I'm going to do? And I think there's a, I think USC likes a little of that gamesmanship. Uh, they want people who have strong opinions, who, uh, who are, are not obnoxious, but are uh, committed, you know, to telling uh, a story from their point of view. And so that's, that's what I did. And that's a unique, um, <clears throat> that's a unique pairing. Uh, there's very few people. I mean, to to have uh, gone that route. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you look at that now and you go, man, that was kind of the sweet spot for me doing both. Or do you go, oh God, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 people constantly ask me to kind of make a choice. Mm. And, and I would say, in a sense, a false choice. Mm. Kind of give me an either or. Well, you're going to do this or you're going to do that. And I kept saying, well, I'm actually trying to integrate these things in my own head and in my own heart and in my own craft. So why are you trying to pull apart what I'm trying with, with God's help to pull together? And so I didn't see them as, as competing. I saw them as complementary. Other people saw them as competing <laughs> and yeah. as confusing. Um, but I think about the people who uh, have been through Fuller Seminary and are working in the business since then. It's a pretty long list. I mean, it's, right. it's people like Justin Bell, it's Camille Tucker, it's, it's Chris Retz, uh, Jeremy Seifert. Um, you know, all these folks have, have gotten movies made and have, have serious credits. And, um, and they, I think, did the same thing. You know, they, they sort of decided, rather than looking at... Um, uh, this kind of false choice that is maybe presented both by the church as well as by Hollywood. They were like, well, why can't I, in a sense, bring the best of both traditions? If a filmmaker is considering, if they're talking to you and they're considering going to seminary, a filmmaker, why, what would your advice be to them and why? Um, I think if they want to get to a deeply integrative place in their faith, where their faith isn't uh, something that they see as um, either outside themselves or as counter to their goals. Uh, if they want to bring God with them through the course of their life and through the ups and downs of the business, a seminary education is really helpful because you're looking at the long theological history, the long biblical history, and you start to see um, that a verse like, uh, you know, in Jeremiah 29, when it says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? Plans to, to give you a future, right? To prosper you. Um, you. You read that. And then you, in your class, you're like, 
oh, what happened right before that? Oh, they were the Israelites that, that that promise came to had just been exiled to Babylon. They left their hometown, their temple was burned, and they landed in Babylon at the hands of the people who oppressed them. So that good news arrives in the middle of a super deep, dark, depressing place. And even more so, it arrives on the heels of God saying to those folks, guess what? It's going to be 70 years before I bring you out, for I have plans to prosper you <laughs> and give you a hope and a future. And so when you understand that, you're not bringing maybe that false expectation and that maybe immature understanding of scripture and God's promise to his people into your Hollywood career. And now maybe you're going to be less frustrated because you're going to say, oh, I'm actually more like the uh, Israelites in Babylon who were promised it's going to be really hard. <laughs> and so the strategy in the meantime was settle down, yeah. plant a garden, and, and, and build a house and get to know people, i.e., just become part of the community yeah. and be available because, yeah. because you have to seek the welfare of the city and the people that you're with. So if Babylon prospers, you'll prosper. So now come to Hollywood and you don't come because you hate Hollywood. You come because you love Hollywood and you're not here to try to do something anti-Hollywood. You're here to do, try to do something with Hollywood that as they prosper, guess what? You will prosper. That's the biblical witness of Jeremiah and for the Babylonians. And you only get that, I think, through a seminary education that asks you to integrate these kinds of thoughts. That's good. You bring up a couple of things that I'd love to pick your brain on. One is, <clears throat> I think you described, <laughs> I think you described there in a very succinct way, what I would describe as kind of the schism right now in Christians in the arts or in film and media, right? It is, it feels like often, and I'm using generalities here, but it feels like often you have the two groups. You have the group that says, hey, we're going to come to Hollywood, not the zip code, but Hollywood, the people, and we're going to love on them. We're going to live, our kids are going to play with their kids. We're going to live life with them, and we're going to uh, want them to succeed and prosper uh, as, as we come alongside with them and all that good stuff. And then you have the group that likes to stand on the outside and uh, for lack of a better term, use uh, this medium uh, to proselytize. They see it as, a, um, as an us versus them. They don't want to be in the business. They want to uh, create their own business. How, in your opinion, did we get there and how do we break through? Well, um... You know, there was a book written by uh, H. Richard Niebuhr in uh, like the 1950s right. mm -hmm. called Christ, Christ and Culture. And, culture. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's really five biblical uh, streams, historical streams of different kinds of Christianity and different approaches to culture. Um, and, and some have taken an adversarial standpoint and said, I'm going to be Christ against culture. Um, and I'm going to withdraw from culture, and I'm going to create an alternative to that. Um, and I, I think that's beautiful. You know, like you look at the Amish, and you say that they live their life with such uh, integrity that people literally pay money to go take pictures of them living out their life. <laughs> so, <they're, laughs> so their Christian witness uh, is, is also a tourism industry, yeah. because, it's, because it's so distinct. 
Yeah, and buy their and buy their food and their pies, right? Exactly. Um, I think where things get funky is if you take that anti-culture uh, viewpoint and then you try to bring that into the public square. Now you're bringing like war language into a public arena where people are saying like, "How how are you approaching me? And what am I supposed to do when you when you kind of are greeting me with a sword?" It's a very, very odd posture in the name of Jesus, you know? Um, I mean, there's a tradition, right? John the Baptist kind of just stood out looking like a wild man and condemned people right and left and said, you got to prepare for the way of the Lord. I don't think John the Baptist, he had followers, right? But I don't think um, that he thought, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'll be a hit. <laughs> and I, you're right. He already had decided I don't have an interest in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem doesn't have an interest in me. I'm going to stay in the desert, and we'll be fine, right? It's when this messy middle, when you take anti-Hollywood attitudes into the public square, that you've now really, really muddied up the waters, right? How do we, how do we help people with that? How do we help them? How do we help people understand a better path? Uh, given my experience, I don't think you can. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we got for the day, folks. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm just saying, like, John the Baptist was never going to shave and put on a new coat. Um, you know, and ultimately, he lost his head when he got a little too close to the situation. So I would say those who think you can be anti-Hollywood and then come into Hollywood and be welcomed, you're kidding yourself, right? Um, so you should probably stay in the desert yeah. and, and, and live out your alternative lifestyle. It's yeah. the problem when you wanna mix it yeah. and have the best of both worlds. Like I hate Hollywood, but, I, but could you release my film? Now we've got a real problem. Yeah. I've made a movie that condemns people like you. Why don't you release it? Uh, there's probably some good reasons why I don't release it, you know, <laughs> you know, um, you know, so, so that's the problem is that we come with a sword and uh, in the name or allegedly in the name of love and say, why don't you love me? And it's like, well, you started it, man, you brought the sword and they might say, no, no, you started it. But you know what? As people of faith, we are not called to bring a sword <laughs> in the, in the name of Jesus as an act of love. Mm, that's really good. Do you, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I think oftentimes we get asked these questions on these kind of things where it's like people are talking about successes, but I think we learn most from our, mostly from our failures. Mm. Sad you but know, true. Sad but true. <laughs> I'm, if, you know, for you looking back on uh, your, your time in the business up to now, are there moments uh, that you look at and go, yeah, I, that was, that was a mistake. And I, I, I need to learn from that. And I, and I have learned from that. Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think what's hard in the business is to, is to understand you're only probably going to get two or three moments of major uh, go left, go right, go with this person, go with that person, mm -hmm. uh, align with this producer, sell to that company. Um, make a deal with that agent. There's really only a few times that that happens. And the choices you make actually make a big difference. 
And you can't know when you make those choices whether it's right or wrong. And even afterwards, it's maybe not clear what is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So you have to then decide, what do I do with my potential for regret in relationship to it? Mm -hmm. And do I kind of beat myself up about that? Do I live with regrets? Do I live with what ifs? Or do I say, well, that would have been a different path, but that isn't the path that I'm actually on. (laughs) I'm on a different path with God. Um, A a good example, there was earlier in my career, there was, uh, I had a script that a company wanted to buy. And so for, you know, 48 hours, I could kind of decide who I wanted my agent to be. Because I could say to agents, uh, hey, I've got somebody who wants to buy a script and do you want to rep me? And so I, I literally, I got patched straight through to people like William Morris and, and, and places like that because nobody's going to turn down money. So it was me deciding who would get 10% of my money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I had that situation with an, a manager and there was a person who at that point had one client but he had actually been pretty helpful in this process. And I was like, I could go with him, but he only has one client. That just seems crazy. Like they have no track record. Like he's working out, his office is a coffee shop and he's working out of his trunk, you know? Um, Well, that one client that he had was Mark Burnett. Wow. (laughs) So I would have been his second client, right? This would have been pre, you know, Survivor. So I probably would have been a producer on Survivor right? I'd have however many millions of dollars and, and I'd be some, you know, uh, not a king. I'd be uh, maybe a loyal prince uh, to, to the king of, of reality TV. Well, did I miss something there? Maybe. Yeah, maybe I really did. Maybe I have many millions of dollars less than I could have. But my goal was actually never to get into reality TV. Right. And so I don't know that I can regret that decision. Uh, because that wasn't necessarily the path that I wanted. It might have paid better. Uh, I'd have a very different life. But at the end of the day, oddly enough, um, I know Mark. I know Roma. I live uh, maybe two miles from where they do. We, you know, so at the end of the day, eh. Yeah, you're okay. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. And I think regret is, it's a part of growing up. I mean, you just, that's just, you know, you, you haven't lived unless you've, have some things you can look back on and think, I could have gone left. That's instead of going right. I'll get, we'll get into this a little bit more uh, in detail later. Um, You have also spent a huge chunk of your life as a mentor and educator um, for so many um, um, writers and filmmakers in your time working with young artists what do you, what have you kind of identified as some of the core struggles that young filmmakers and artists have that um, you kind of identified as some, some, some key ones that you're constantly having to work with them on and encourage them on? Because there's going to be quite a few listening to this, and I'm just curious what kind of advice you'd have for them uh, right now. <clears throat> well, if you're coming from the Christian community, I think you have the constant pressure of like what my uh, Aunt Betty is going to think. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so you end up maybe trying to tell half, half truths to please uh, somebody in a living room somewhere. And so you maybe never tell the full truth that you, God has maybe placed in your heart, your mind, and your body out of a little bit of fear of not wanting to offend 
uh, those who are near and dear to you and not wanting to create maybe a schism, not have an ugly or uncomfortable conversation. Uh, so that's the first thing is try to decide, well, who are you most answerable to, you know, um, or ultimately answerable to. Uh, so I guess courage to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's, that's always in short supply. Um, second, I think, uh, is, is self-doubt is, is huge. Just a huge factor to believe that you're good enough, that you have something to say. Um, sadly, I see that way more in women than men, particularly mm -hmm. if you've been raised in a Christian context. Generally speaking, you haven't been encouraged to speak up. You haven't been encouraged to lead. You haven't been, in, you haven't been valued uh, for your voice. And so that self-doubt is much stronger. I've seen a lot of really less talented guys continue to put themselves out there. <laughs> and yep. the brilliant woman is sitting right beside them with the answer. And she is hesitant to go ahead and say what she knows is absolutely dead on, spot on, and brilliant. Uh, so I really, I guess, encourage uh, women to try to throw off the shackles that uh, a lot of Christianity, unfortunately, has placed upon you. Uh, and then I think the third uh, distinctive need is for resilience. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to predict who has that uh, because so many of us maybe haven't been knocked down uh, in route or prior to getting to Hollywood. We may have succeeded within our, our, our corner of the world. And so we were the best in Omaha. We were the best in Kentucky. We were the best in, um, in, in, Idaho. And then you get to Hollywood and it's like, well, the best in Idaho now has to compete with the best in every state and the best in every country. And so now, oh, wait, wait. Oh, so you're saying that the, the Oscar winners are coming from South Korea and Mexico. <laughs> and now I have to compete with the best on a global stage. That is a whole different level of getting your game together. And a lot of people just collapse under that uh, rejection. Yeah. And um, so, so the most successful are oftentimes not the, um, the most talented. They are the most resilient. They can take the hit, be knocked to the mat, and figure out how to get back up and do it again. That's, that's really good. I, I completely agree. I, I don't think we've done a, um, a good enough job uh, teaching people how to uh, be resilient, how to get back up, how to keep going. Uh, we, we have not, we have not done a good job teaching failure and, and how to respond to failure because it's inevitable. It's inevitable. And, and it's not just a one-time thing as you're saying, like this is, this is an industry when, when, you know, when people go, let's like the Oscars, when you watch the Oscars, you're watching, you know, they expanded the category a couple of years ago, the, the five best picture nominees can be up to eight or nine now. Right you're looking at nine choices for best picture, not the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that were told you're not the best, right? And then, you're, and then you're not looking at the thousands upon thousands of scripts that were, hey, they're good, but they're not gonna be made this year. They're not gonna be made the next year. And so th this is a, a, a business that it, 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 it can't help but self-select over, over and over and over again. And you have to have that resilience to just, to just keep going. And, and, and we have to do a better job of teaching that, I think. 
Um, and, I, and I think that that's a, <clears throat> a good spot for, for people of faith. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we um, well, again, I, I, I talked about that long history of faith, right? If you understand Israel's struggles, right? Or, or even any biblical story, right? We, we sort of look at Noah and we say, oh man, 40 days on the ark, that's really rough. Well, you don't realize that when the rain stopped, they still had to wait out like another 40 days for the waters to reside. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're like, oh, I can do 40 days. Well, guess what? It was more than 40, <laughs> you know, or, or uh, you know, it was 70 years in, in Babylon, right? So it's not that we're called to suffer. It's that we have to develop a muscle for the long haul and, um, and, a, and a kind of taking a, maybe a more farmer approach to things, right? right? Where there's sort of, there's good harvests and there's bad harvests, and it's all due to a lot of external environments. It's not that you were a bad farmer. There wasn't enough rain. There yeah. wasn't enough funding. Yeah. Um, you know, I had the wrong seed. We had a bad star. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I overwatered it. <laughs> well, we had an indulgent director. <laughs> yeah, right? right. Um, I mean, all of those factors can create uh, basically something that could be beautiful, it could be gorgeous, that could be tasty, and turn it into something that, you know, withers on the yeah. vine and then yeah. come to fruition. Yeah. So um, even marketing. You know, pe- so many films fail on marketing. It's not that it wasn't a good film. It's just people never discovered it. So that's really hard to take as a writer. It's like, I did everything I could. How could I? Marketing wasn't my problem. And and the answer is right. It wasn't your problem. You got caught in a regime change. You got caught because the the exec who ordered it wasn't the exec who released it. And so they didn't care about their child. They neglected their child. You're now a neglected child under a new studio regime. That's hard. But it's also hard to be a neglected child in life. Right. And that neglected child is the one who develops resilience. I think that's why there's a lot of broken people in the business because they're people who've already been dealt with rejection and they're like, I'm going to get back up. I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do it. So like I was saying, you, you, you basically um, have been a mentor to a lot of people. Matter of fact, there was an article, right, bro? Like you were mentioned as was a couple of years ago, right? Variety mentioned you as, as an, as a, a top mentor in the business, right? It was a, it was a cool honor. It was yeah. a very, it was a, it was a little like, oh, okay, I guess I can die now. Kind of honor. <laughs> <laughs> That's officially like you're old. Now that you're recognized as a good mentor, you're clearly old and over the hill. Thank you very much. <laughs> why, why do you spend so much time uh, investing in the next generation? Um, well, I think that gets back to that question of the, about uh, MDiv uh, degree versus a film school degree. I, I didn't see my career as my ministry. I saw how I treated people in the midst of my career as my ministry. And so uh, it's not like, oh, if I get successful, then I'll give back. That seems, that seems completely antithetical to the way the kingdom of God works. You know, you, you know uh, Jesus' teaching was as he went, right? So you just offer whatever you've got at that moment, at that time. It may not be uh, complete wisdom. Maybe I would have more to offer if I had worked heavier on my career. But I was, I was equally interested in going forward as a community. And frankly, I think that's a key part of resilience. You know, this notion that you, you can go it alone or the notion of like the brave, brilliant writer in their own room. I just think it's, it's a false understanding of what we're called to be as God's people. 
we're called to be a community. Act one is a community of creatives. And it's in that community that you find that resilience. And when you're down, somebody else is up. And when, when you're up, somebody else is down. And so it's that sharing in common. It's much closer to the spirit of, you know, Acts chapter two of that early church. And so for me, um, to get to the summit and be up there alone would have just been silly. It just, it's like, that's just not, I, don't, I just don't see God calling us to uh, have moments of profound individual achievement. It, it, it's a collaborative business. Even, it, it doesn't really happen. Yeah, right. no, it, it doesn't really happen. All the greats have people that, that, that help them get there and they, and they bring people with them when they go. Well, it, and it's why it's like Scorsese will go down in history as one of the great directors, but Thelma Schumacher is going to go down as one of the great editors. Exactly. Because you couldn't get there as Scorsese without Thelma. She exactly. was there for Raging Bull, right? Mm -hmm. She was there for the Irishman. She was there on both ends of his career. So. Yep. That's real. That's, that's so true. Those are the, it's so funny that you connect to those two things because those two things I often talk about the idea of resilience, the lack, the lack of, resilience and the 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 need to teach people the how to fail and how to respond to failure and the idea that you don't go it alone like we, we, we th this idea of the lone wolf artist it's just not realistic in this business it is it possible sure but so is you know you can be orson wells and make a uh, you know making a, a the greatest film of all time when you're 25 years old but even he didn't do it alone he brought his entire acting troupe with him and a creative troupe with him. So um, that, that to me is something that uh, we, we can't miss out on. We just can't miss out on. Well, and his insufferable personality and idea that he is a lone genius made, made it clear that nobody in Hollywood worked work with him. Yeah. You know, he spent the rest of his life not being able to get the funding for his brilliant ideas because he was such a jerk when he had the money. Yes, yes. So, you know, <clears throat> when you sit down to watch a film, you watch a lot of films. I'm curious how you watch a film. Are, 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 you, are, you, are you 12 year old, Craig? Just like, man, I just wanna just escape and get away. Uh, are you educator, you know, theologian, <laughs> Craig, let me dissect this movie. Um, you know, like which, how, how, you know, I, I'm curious how you watch films and I'm curious what are some of the films that you've seen recently that you just absolutely love? Well, I, I think it's fun to have that um, childlike sense of glee, right? When you're swept up in a story. But I don't think having a film education or a film edu appreciation uh, robs you of that. Right. Uh, for me, understanding the craft of how a film is put together actually deepens my appreciation for those who do it well. Yeah. And so I can, at the same time that I'm, I'm recognizing, oh, that was a great uh, act one, you know, hook. Like I am locked in as a viewer. Um, ooh, what an amazing uh, twist, right? In the middle of act two, I can recognize that and still delight and be caught up in it at the same time. Yeah. It's us watching 1917. You can love nice, but but when you sit back and realize that was a wonder, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, it, well, something like Parasite, you appreciate the depth of the storytelling because of his ability to play tricks on you. Where it's like, I kind of know the tricks and you're still pulling it over on me. That's pretty good, yeah, right? Yep, you're, yep. Reach, you're, you're digging into a deeper well. 
yeah. you're being more original um, or you're stealing, you're stealing from better sources and hiding it well. <laughs> yeah. um, so films, I, you, films you've seen maybe in the past five or six years that you would say, if you haven't seen this movie, see this movie. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think, uh, I actually think Shoplifters, the Japanese film uh, from a couple of years ago is actually better than Parasite. Interesting. It just wasn't as widely recognized. Um, similar themes, similar issues. I think it's even more deeply empathetic, more deeply humane, and perhaps even a more savage critique of our um, ability to dehumanize others along economic lines and so the way it it defines family and shows decency and does it with humor uh is just outstanding um the that that the director uh Koreeda is he's he's fantastic everything yeah. he does is it brings such depth and humanity to it it was it was phenomenal it's on i'm sure it's available i think it's on i don't know who i don't know if it's on hulu it's on somebody uh now for free i'll check it out i yeah. love it I, I was introduced to, you know, Korean cinema 20 years ago or yeah, somewhere around there. And, and I've just um, fallen in love with so many of those great filmmakers. And th I think oftentimes <clears throat> the mistake we make in the West over here is we stop, we stop being um, <clears throat> ambitious with our stories we're ambitious with our technology, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but yeah. we have kind of sometimes forgotten this to continue to be ambitious with our stories, our characters, and uh, and but that transition just to our next, um, but not so much with television. I think the ambition for its characters and stories has shifted in many regards to television. What I what I often say is we're living in the the platinum age of television more than the golden age. Why has television why has television exploded creatively, in your opinion, over the past couple of years? And, um, you know, what's your kind of prognostication for cinema going forward? I mean, you know, you and I are having this conversation in the middle of the pandemic and we're locked away. AMC might be bankrupt. Like, uh, I'm just curious, you know, because there's a lot of great stuff happening in, on television. I mean, amazing stuff. But, uh, but, what, but, but you and I both love to sit in movie theaters and watch a good movie. True. Well, you know, TV, there's more room. It's, it, you know, if you have 50 hours to follow a character, you're just going to go to much deeper places than yeah. two hours. Right. Or, or even, you know, Lord of the Rings, you, maybe you've got nine hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> you spend nine hours with Frodo, but, you know, you're, you, on Breaking Bad, you're, you got, you know, 50, you know, 60, how, you know, be, better call Saul. Right. It's like these these spinoffs where it's like, oh, well, that was an interesting character. I wonder about his story. Where did he come from? So even prequels to TV series, right, like yeah. Better Call Saul can be fascinating uh, character studies. So uh, the other difference is that, uh, you know, television is is about the close up. And so it's actually going to not focus necessarily on the scale and on the spectacular, but it's going to focus on the human. Uh, so it, it, it demands uh, characters that have a certain complexity rather than maybe a cocksure attitude. It also demands characters that are more human-sized. They're a little more like us because they're in our living room. 
And so we want them to resemble us as opposed to a superhero who is like out of this world. If I'm going to leave my house, then I'll go out of my house into a superhero world. But on a weekly basis, I might want to laugh with someone whose struggle resembles mine and whose choices also resemble mine. And so that everyday ethics that I think is at the heart of television, uh, it's both everyday ethics and then therefore it's getting into more eternal questions of values and, and how you're going to live and the choices you're going to make, whether that's in a medical drama, whether that's in a, um, a law drama, whether that's in a family sitcom, right? Those are everyday settings where people have to make life and death decisions and face everyday struggles, finances, uh, raising kids, uh, whether to cheat, whether to lie, whether to be faithful. Um, TV is, is more like the campfire. Yeah. It's campfire scaled and it's easier to gather around, I yeah. think, in that way. Yeah. It's more like, and, and I would dare say it's more like church. Yes. There's a, there's a communal, I mean, the, <coughs> the instinct to gather around that fire and talk about and process, right? I mean, the, you know, what Game of, Thor- what Game of Thrones offered people week after week lost, you know, these shows. Um, it is a it is a form of church. Well, and also even the scale, right? Church is a one hour program that is connected to the issues of the day. Mm-hmm. And television, because of its shooting schedule, tends to be much more timely. And so you can take something from the headlines and put it into uh, a plot on Madam Secretary, mm-hmm. you know, and and maybe three, four, five, six weeks later, it's right there on TV. Uh, and so it's comparable maybe also to sermon series. A lot of pastors these days, right? They, they may do four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks on a particular theme. Well, there's a lot of shows now that are four episodes, six episodes or eight episodes kind of about a particular theme. You know, uh, you look at Fleabag and you say, well, gosh, that was, you know, what was that? Six or eight 30 yeah. minute episodes, right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of a long movie, yeah. but the episodic nature allows it to leap forward and do some things that, that uh, TV can't, I mean, excuse me, film doesn't quite do as well. Yeah. And, and I forget her name. <laughs> What's her name? I forget her for Plea Fleabag, but she's so talented. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And, yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And you almost wonder if we would be able to experience her talent uh, without that. Like that, that, that unique way of being able to tell that story in that format um, provides us access. It's such a funny show. Yep. What do you see going forward? I mean, uh, like I was saying, you and I both love to sit in a movie theater and watch movies. Is this going to dramatically, obviously it's going to impact us, but is it going to dramatically alter um, our, our ex- cinema experiences going forward, you think? Um, it seems to me like I would just call it small cinema is going away. I think independent cinema, just like independent theaters are going to really struggle because the next generation seems to prefer big cinema. Uh, if they're going to a theater, they want it to be something that just overwhelms with experience, uh, you know, with sensation. Uh, it's much closer to a roller coaster. Uh, roller coaster ride where you just kind of hold on tight. Um, you're not necessarily thinking about very much. You're just having a sensation. Um, 
I, at the end of a roller coaster ride, you're not a better person. <laughs> you, you might have a, a little thrill, a little tingle in your bones. Uh, and I think that a lot of cinema is satisfied to do that for people and people are satisfied to say, ah, for that two hours, I was scared. For that two hours, I was thrilled. Um, for that two hours, I laughed, uh, or maybe 90 minutes. Um, and that's okay. You know, like that's one form of exchange. I will give you, here's my 10, 15, $20, and maybe it's going to go up. My, I can see it going up to $25 or $30 for a certain kind of Marvel experience. Um, what happens to those human size stories, right? Like shoplifters, like Parasite. Uh, I, I'm not sure. The, the victory of Parasite and the fact that it made almost $50 million in America is a very encouraging sign. It doesn't mean that there's not an appetite. It just means you have to look, work very, very hard to capture people's attention uh, in the time of limited attention span. And so the entertainment that comes, you know, through the phone uh, that is very immediate in short bursts. Uh, I can see why Quimby, uh, Quibi has attracted billions of dollars. Um, I may not be the, the ideal Quibi viewer, but I think they believe that that represents the future of entertainment. Uh, five minute, 10 minute bites. Uh, I tend to feel a little undernourished after that. Yeah. And so perhaps people, you know, just in the same way, like we still have novels, yeah. you know, the novel hasn't ended. Um, I think there'll be, there'll always still be small, deeply humane, independent stories. But can you make a living as a deeply uh, humane, independent filmmaker? I don't know. Can you make a living as a novelist? I don't know. It's very, very tough right now. Yeah. Uh, when I teach high school students, I ask you know, what, what do you watch? What do you, and almost, and this is a high percentage, almost none of them watch television. And some of them don't even, a lot of them don't even go to the movies. They, they, they watch YouTube. They watch it on their phones. And every once in a while they watch Netflix and it's about it. That's how they choose to consume their content. It's, it's fascinating to me. It's very, mm -hmm. very few. Unless like you said, the big event films, right? That drives them to the theaters. You, you know, you, br you brought up the, you, you know, you use the word. So I'm going to ask you, are you on Scorsese's side of this conversation? Because you talked about it being a, <laughs> a roller coaster, a theme, a theme park ride. Um, you know, the, that, the, all that, a uh, little bit of that controversy that happened with that article that he wrote, that op-ed piece. Um, what do you think about that? Is, is the, are these big ticket blockbuster Marvel type films are they cinema? Oh, they're definitely cinema. They're just a different type of cinema, you know? And so Scorsese and, and Paul Schrader before him, they were raised in a different era. And so they have different aspirations about what the best of cinema can deliver. So if you grew up in the, on 70s cinema, which was a certain kind of golden age, right. or even if you grew up on, I would call it 90s cinema, which was a second golden age, that was Gen X, uh, being given the reins on, you know, things like, uh, you know, The Matrix or being John Malkovich or The Sixth Sense or Run, Lola, Run. Um, very interesting, rich time of experimentation. Um, Magnolia, would have, I'd put in that uh, era. Um, that was, those were, those were kids who were raised on the 70s, right? So now the question will be, 
what happens to the kids who might reach back to the 90s? Uh, and will they say, I want to make films like uh, Paul Thomas Anderson? Uh, you know, I want to tell, <clears throat> I want to tell a certain kind of story um, that's about people. Um, we'll, we'll see. Like I say, th those artists or artist types will still exist. Whether there's an audience, uh, I'm a little skeptical, a little skeptical. Um, you, you were talking about the potential end of independent theaters and so on. What is this going to do for the film festivals, the Sundances, the South by Southwest, and, and those are the big ones, but even the more smaller mid-rangers, mid, mid are, are they going to eventually go away, you think, or will there always be a place f for them in the space? Well, they were a great venue to discover new talent and to discover new stories, but if, between Vimeo, YouTube, etc., that's where new talent is discovered. Right. You don't need that other gatekeeper. So I'm actually a bit of an advocate for the rise of the amateur, the person who in a sense does it for love and then is so good at it that other people say, hey, we'll give you money to do that and to do more of it. Um, so there's a, there's a whole flattening of the control apparatus, which those who've been in charge obviously um, don't wanna let go of, right? And I'd be very sad to see Sundance or South by Southwest fade away, but I don't think they have figured out how to renew themselves with a new audience very well. Mm -hmm. um, they, that audience is aging and uh, the next generation, I don't think sees a need to go to a destination to watch a film. If you want me to see something, just put it on my phone and I'll tell you whether it's good or not. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's more direct access, uh, which is is good and bad. It puts the onus on, um, uh, what, what would I say? The, the, the need for curation is probably better, bigger than ever. Interesting. So with the overload of information, I, I in a sense have called the uh, pastors to be better curators and to help their, um, their community find things that are worthy of paying attention to. That's good. That, that brings me to kind of, um, you know, you, you, I was, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, but I believe I was one of your first students. You taught me in 1998 at the Los Angeles Film Studies Center, right? Like I wasn't I, were you I, still in college at the, were you still at, at USC or were you finished? I was there? out of USC, but um, not by much. And, um, and you guys, I think might've been the first semester. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was the first semester. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you, you have, uh, you know, we talked about earlier about your investment in, in young filmmakers. Not too long after that, you and you've taught it. You know, you've taught at Biola. You, you you ran the program at Pepperdine and Biola and these other great organizations, other great schools and stuff. Of course, you've been a part of Act One for a very long time. And, but you started some. You were a part of the group that started something very unique at Sundance called Windrider. And I wonder if you just talk a little bit about you know what is Windrider and how did it come to be? And because I you know as I hear you talking about this, I I feel like. In a sense, you've been doing that. You, you know, 20 years ago, you started curating already for the church, for people of faith. And, um, and that happens through Windrider. Yes. I, I, well, I think it, it arose. Um, I was teaching both at Biola and at Fuller at the time. So I had film students uh, who I thought needed more theological resources. 
and I had theological students who I think needed more cultural or artistic resources. <laughs> and uh, so Sundance became a convenient meeting place <laughs> to, to bring those needs together right. and to bring those audiences together and say, hey, future church leaders, why don't you listen to some filmmakers? And hey, future filmmakers, why don't you listen to some church leaders? And I think you'll both benefit. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, we went there. Uh, it started with uh, four of us uh, at the time, uh, Ed Pretty, John Pretty, and Will Stoller-Lee. And um, we went there not knowing exactly what we would find, but I, be I believed that you could make today's films into a, um, I would call it a, a course, into a class, and that you could uh, program a class based on world premieres. It's a little scary because I don't know what you're going to see in that film, <laughs> but right. doing my research and thinking about what I know of that film and this description and what Sundance is saying about it, let's try it and let's see. And what, what, what I was hoping to do, and I think this has happened, is to train people in a sense, train people of faith to be first responders, mm. to get in front of the cultural conversation, to say, this conversation is happening at Sundance right now will be happening six months from now when the film comes out and 12 months from now when it's competing for an Oscar. And why don't you start thinking now about how you want to respond biblically, theologically, and artistically? Because if this is going to move the needle, if this is going to move people's hearts, if this is going to stir people up, if it's going to create controversy, then why don't you start thinking thoughtfully about, um, about what kind of uh, deeply compassionate and creative response Jesus might make? <laughs> To this, to this particular cultural artifact or moment. And, um, and so, yeah, we've, in that sense, have tried to be ahead of the curve uh, and to bring others with us. And, and I felt like in one week of Sundance, you could accomplish like more than a semester in a normal film school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you see the hustle and you see the level of excellence and you see how many great films are out there and how much dedication to your craft and how much business savvy you need to be able to navigate that high stakes world. And you, and you guys have been running the Win Rider form at Sundance for, is it 15 years? 15 years? I think or? we finished 16 maybe, yeah. So I think this next year will be our 17th. Yeah. What was the, uh, I don't know, I'm curious if even that first year or maybe it wasn't the first year, but was there a uh, kind of an aha moment, a particular film that it was like, man, this is, this, is, this is the point of this. Yes, and each time, it's usually involved something that's probably painful for our audience, uh, where you're having to confront something about ourselves that we may be a little embarrassed by, that we may need to apologize for or even repent of. Mm. And so that first gathering, uh, there was a film called Twist of Faith, and you see it right there in the title. What's a twist of faith? Well, it was a film about abusive uh, priests. And uh, it was set in, uh, you know, I think Toledo, Ohio. I think it was Ohio. Um, and the filmmaker, uh, Kirby Dick, who very dedicated, uh, you know, Oscar-nominated filmmaker, right? Operating at the top of his craft. Uh, we saw this film that was heartbreaking, really heartbreaking. And we invited him to come talk further with us. And he walked in on us and just couldn't believe how many folks were there. And he was like, wait a minute, 
wait, y'all are all here and what you all saw my film and you wait, you're all like Christians, like you're all churchy people and you just saw my film about everything that's wrong with the church and you want to talk more about that? <laughs> and, and, and then just the sheer number, right? Like he as an independent filmmaker is kind of like, it was like him and his, his uh, associate producer. There was like a team of two who pulled off this film and we're sitting there with like 40, 50 people um, all kind of united in wanting to engage. And he was like, what is this community? You know, who is this group that you're part of? And that's when I realized it wasn't just like what those filmmakers have to bring to us, but it's also what we have to bring to the filmmakers in terms of a thoughtful audience, in terms of people who are really willing to engage on the deepest level to, to, to weep and cry after these films with the filmmakers to enter into the suffering that they portrayed and to try to figure out a better way forward. And so that's what we've done. And that's what we've done is create this cinema and conversation. That's fantastic. What have you learned? What, what have you, how have you been changed through the Windrider experience and, and, and taking other believers through this journey? I guess the first thing is just to, sh- to help folks realize that they, it's quite possible for you to get your story made if it's a good story that's worthy of being told. Um, the problem isn't a uh, lack of resources. The problem is lack of excellence. <laughs> yeah. So um, this past year, we saw Lee Isaac Chung, uh, who had had success at various stages of his life. He'd gotten some things made, but had never made his most deeply personal film. And when he basically got to a point where almost of desperation where it's like, I'm not sure I have a career. He decided to tell the most personal story he'd ever told. And that film is called Minari. And that film won Sundance this year. And so it was such great proof that if you are willing to be honest, if you're willing to go to the depth of your own experience um, to tell painful truths and to create hard won hope, there is not just an audience for it, there are accolades, there, are, there is Hollywood lining up for that. Um, but he couldn't have written that film when he was 25. He didn't write that film when he was 25. He, he had to become a father. He had to have the, the fear of like, how are we gonna pay the rent and what are we gonna do? And am I gonna lose my job and my career? And what are my dreams? And you know, only when he got truly desperate enough did the artistry go deep enough. Mm-hmm. to 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 cross over in that way and um so i think that's probably what i've seen is that god's got god's given us what we need to succeed but we maybe haven't been willing to go and pay the price necessary personally artistically spiritually um to get there well, that's good I would love to close just by talking about just briefly about your, your own um, faith journey. I'm curious, you know, um, I don't think I've ever asked you about this, but I don't, you know, were you raised in a, um, a home with faith? Uh, did you come, did you uh, decide to follow Christ at a later age? Um, what, what, what is your faith journey? Well, I grew up in the South. And so uh, that you have a certain level of osmosis 
of uh, you know where there's certain expectations all around you. I, I'm I'm a Tennessee boy. I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't until I went to a Young Life club that I heard the words personal relationship in Jesus Christ put into the same sentence, and that sounded a little different than what I had maybe seen or heard um, up to that time, and so it demanded a different level of. Um, taking stock and, and uh, summoning of commitment of purpose. And so when I got, uh, as a freshman in college, I got, I would say very serious about uh, following Jesus in a very intentional way. Um, and that's been a fuel, long-term fuel through all kinds of seasons of, you know, personal crises and deaths in my family and, and uh, you know, cancer battles and all, all, all kinds of struggles that are just part of life. Um, and so I kind of feel like I'm probably a better writer today than at any time in my life. And I'm probably a better minister or teacher today than I have been at any time in my life. And that's a beautiful thing to realize that um, I understand that like uh, TV staffing season and sitcoms, like once you're like 32, it's like the clock starts ticking. You know, I get that they right. just think like, you gotta be cool and cynical and hip. That's fine. <laughs> um, if I'm interested in trying to tell a true story that will last, you know, a story that has depth and insight, I'm not sure I've gotten there yet, but I'm hopeful that, uh, that, that, God is not done with me yet. And that there's, there's still more kicking around, you know, stuff that I'm working on right now. Craig, uh, I love you to death and you've always been so kind and so generous and um, so caring, not only to me, but to so many other people. And uh, I know you're busy and I just appreciate the time you've given me and everyone else today. So just, from the bottom of my heart, just thank you for everything you've done for Act One and everything you've done for um, so many people. And um, if it's okay with you, I'd love to pray for you before we close. Would that be okay? I would uh, love to be prayed for, and, and thank you, uh, Jimmy, just for you know for me to be able to see, you know, see your walk in, in with God through Hollywood and all the ups and downs. And twenty years later, here you are at Act One. Uh, how fun for me. How fun for me. It makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Let me, thanks, Craig. Let, let me pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for Craig Detwaller. I want to thank you for uh, who he is. I want to thank you for um, uh, what he's done. And I want to thank you for what you continue to do in and through him. And I just want to pray a blessing upon him, uh, a blessing upon his his marriage and his relationship with his children, uh, his, uh, all of his work endeavors, um, all of his ministry endeavors. Uh, God, I just pray a blessing upon him. I pray that you would uh, go before him and um, <clears throat> um, um, use him to uh, continue to do great things because I agree with him. I don't think... Uh, He's done. I think he's got a lot more left in the tank. 
and some of his best years are ahead of him. And I look forward to seeing how you're going to use him in all the different places uh, you have him. And uh, just thank you for who he is. And I just pray a blessing upon him. We pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. To learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. Thank you.